Welcome back to the Off the X podcast. My name is Cody. I am your host, and tonight's guest is Active Duty Diplomatic Security Service Special Agent Chris Kopeck. Chris just hit his 20-year mark in diplomatic security. He's currently serving as an 1811 out of the St. Louis resident office. He has much knowledge to share from working out of the New York field office as an assistant regional security officer in Muscat, Oman. He spent some time working as a supervisor with the DS Major Events Coordination Unit at the Olympic Games. Valuable insight into the career of a DS agent. So, listen in, enjoy, and I'll catch you all on the backside. You know, kick it off with with you taking over and telling us about about your 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 time at DS. Let's start a little bit before uh, maybe. You start with DS, kind of get your background uh, prior to that, and then yeah, uh, sure. Take us. I um, so I actually had a totally different path that I thought I was going to take. Um, I went to one of the military academies. I went to the U.S. Marine Academy, one of the five Federal Service Academies, and I, I chose that. I chose Kings Point. I knew about it from my grandfather, who was a graduate, and um, I wanted to fly for the Navy, so. I started looking around when I was like seventh grade. I was a strangely motivated kid. I was like, how do I, how do I fly? How do I do this? And the guidance I got was stay in school, get good grades. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll walk you through the next steps eventually. So I, I looked into the academies and I found the King's Point, which is what we call U.S. Virgin Marine Academy, had more flight spots per student body than, say, Annapolis did. So... Out of the academies, I, I chose Kings Point, went there, and four years later, I got into flight school. I had orders in hand to go to Pensacola, but I chose not to go. Um, I don't know if you know, I know you were military, and the flight school orders don't kick in until you show up. So you have the option of deciding if you want to go. So I decided against it. I was tired of, you know, after four years of the academy, doing what other people wanted me to do. And I said, I had, I, I mean, I went from high school, I had maybe a week off in between graduation and starting the academy. And then uh, I, I never really had any downtime. So I said, no, I'm going to take some time for myself, not go active duty. So I took my reserve commission and uh, I went private sector. So I started in a company, I was a fiber optic cable engineer, deep sea fiber optic cable. I laid cable in the ocean. Um, which was really good money for a young kid. I was 21, um, but it wasn't what I wanted to do. So I hopped around and I did a, a lot of various things. I was a financial advisor. Um, I stayed in the maritime industry. I was a logistics coordinator. And all these things were supposed to lead somewhere else that never happened. So when I was back with a shipping company, I was in Tampa, Florida. And the logistics job that was supposed to be a foot in the door for uh, like operations, shipping operations never happened. It was a good old boy system that I got shut out of. So I started looking around and my alumni web page at the time. Now this was, this was in 2000. Um, they had a job vacancy announcement and diplomatic security was listed. And I, like many people had never heard of DS. And I started reading the description and I said, that sounds really interesting. Now, prior to that, once I didn't get the operations job in the maritime industry, uh, I was thinking about just being a cop. 
And I say just because my dad phrased it that way. He was a cop for 26 years, I believe, in New York. He said, listen, don't just be a cop. He said, if you want to go law enforcement, that's great, but look federal. And I said, well, why? And he said, trust me, that's why. I dealt with, you know, other BS locally for so many years. You should look federally. So I took his advice, and that's where I found this job and compared it to the other agencies, and I really liked what I read, so I put my application in. When I did, um, I don't know about when you went through, but we actually had like a paper application. You had to write everything out. They asked you certain questions. What's your background? You mailed it in. And if you qualified, then they scheduled for the BECS, which I'm sure other guests have told about the BECS, the Board of Examiners. Um, you basically sit down with a panel and you redo all the paperwork you did. And then you, you know, have to answer oral exam questions also. And after you go through the whole BECS, then they say, all right, hey, you, you passed everything. You will get a letter. Now, again, back in 2000, they said you will get a letter saying that you qualified and it will tell you if you're in the top third, middle third, or bottom third. And based on where you are, you might get a job offer, you might not. So I got my letter um, on September 10th of 2001 saying you're in the middle third and if we need you, we'll call you. And the next day I said, I think I have a job. So for me, it was unfortunate good timing with 9-11. Um, and I was right. I got my offer in October of 01, I believe, or November. Medical background. And then um, I started April 1st of 2002. So I just passed my 20-year anniversary. That's a pretty quick turnaround. Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, it was pretty fast back then. But again, I, I think the unfortunate good timing had a lot to do with it. Yeah, I, I imagine so. I think yeah. I, mine was pretty quick too. Nine months, I think, full turnaround. Um, I'd already that's had, really that's really fast. Yeah, I'd already had TS clearance, but they didn't even they, t they said you know we'll we'll look for the reciprocity from DOD, but they take so long that you might get your interim before. And I got my interim in like three months. Sure. Um, but I had first applied in two thousand five, and then again in uh, 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 six and seven or seven and eight, and then I got came on in two thousand eight. Uh, first time I hear about the paper application though. Um, yeah, no, it, it existed. Uh, but the, you know what the funny thing was, looking back, when I was going through, I was like, well, I have the prerequisites, which is a four-year degree. Um, now, at the time, I was like, oh, I'm not, you know, this high-speed guy. I'm not former special forces. I'm not former law enforcement. I don't know if I'm going to be able to get this job. Well, when it came down to the testing, as you know, all the variety that I did experience in what I didn't want to do gave me the answers of, yep, I've done that. Yep, I've done that. Um, you know, have you ever managed a budget of whatever? Yes, I was a financial advisor. I got this. Do you have any professional licenses? I said, how many pages do you have to <laughs> for, for me to write down? They have a you know, third mate, Coast Guard unlimited tonnage license. I had a radar operator. I had the financial advisor. It just everything lined up for me where things that I thought in, man, I don't know what I want to do. Um, I thought that would hurt me. It actually worked to my benefit. Um, when they say get experience, it doesn't mean necessarily become a cop and get on the street and get experience. It means get life experience. And I, I had some and didn't realize it. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I get a lot of questions in the, in the, uh, you know, the space that I'm in sharing about DS and, and on, whether it's on uh, Instagram or other places. And they say, Hey, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't a cop or I wasn't this. And, continuously over and over said so you don't have to be 
and oh. and uh, Kayla Bokelman came on. She's the recruiter for DS. If you podcast, yeah, I know right. Kayla real well. I'm going to know a lot of people you bring up probably. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we both do. You know, it's yeah, a, it's absolutely. a small it's a small world. And uh, and and Kayla, you know, the way she uh, you know articulated this was like, <clears throat> look, you can be from any background, and you can have the most experience that's related exactly to DS or some other job it's all about how you convey that experience and how you can relate it to the the, the one the vacancy announcement but how it can work for you and and you especially in your position as a as a as an 1811 can imagine like there's so much value to people like we had a guy uh you you probably know him as well i won't say his name but in houston there was a former uh, accountant and we had a job with a, with uh, he has had a big visa case mm-hmm. and and you know, follow the money. And he worked with the IRS to, to, to do, uh, and that by IRS, I mean the intelligence research specialist, right? Is right. Like, yeah. Yeah. Our position IRS. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, they uh, call them ISs now. They, they drop the, they drop the R. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. They are now investigative specialists. Yeah. We have a good one in St. Louis. Awesome. So, yeah. But the point is, you know, one, people, you can have any background as long as, uh, it's, it's, uh, experience and you can convey that experience and it can, it can, one, it can get you past the backs, and two, it can help you on the job. Everything, just absolutely. The uh, the points you accumulate through having experience is technically helpful for the, you know, whatever the threshold is in passing. But I've been on the other side. I've been on the board of examiners, and it really comes down to not only how many points does a person accumulate, but how they think things through. You know, it comes down to your critical thinking, your problem solving skills. Um, you know, questions are asked that you don't know the answer to, and you're not supposed to know the answer to it. It's just, we want to see how someone thinks through those answers. Um, what, what do you do? You, you know, and if uh, the best is like, if, if someone just starts making things up that they don't know if they have access to, it's just, they're, they're, they're thinking things through and that's really what we like to see. Yep. Right on. So you came on, so April, you said? April, April, uh, April I was the April Fool's class, April 1st of 02. Okay. And I uh, got assigned to the New York field office, which I'm from New York originally, so I was thrilled to go back. Wasn't thrilled to live in the expensive area of towns, but, uh, you know, it's a trade-off. But overall, the New York field office, NIFO, um, in my personal opinion, is a great first office to be assigned to. Obviously, I don't know any different. I didn't get assigned to any other office to start. But, um, you know, just from hearing other people's opinions over the years, the people you meet, the, the NIFO crew is a tight-knit, you know, almost like a family. And uh, the biggest thing is the investigations and the protection is nonstop on both sides. So you'll be working something hard, and then you'll get an email, hey, we need you to, you know, go into the city and be the advance agent for whatever the next day. And it's, it was a high pace, um, nonstop assignment when I went through and, but it was really enjoyable. Great people, great work. Had a lot of NIFO guys on. I'm sure you have. We're all over the place. It's just (laughs) such a big office. And, and, uh, and and I I say this every pie, I'm a Houston guy, but I'm an advocate for the NIFO guys just because when I, one, when I met the agents there, I worked with them so well-rounded because they've done so much in so short of a time. They've been there for three months and they've done, way more particularly in protection than the and investigations than someone out of Houston might have. Definitely. Um, and, uh, and always, you know, they always have the cooler jobs too. You're from NIFO. You're going to be doing an advance for this out of town dude that's coming in to be, <coughs> you know, or right. Uh, so, uh, 
Well, good. So what, what uh, you, you, uh, get assigned to any special teams in, in NIFO? You, you yeah. Get so, you know, I had or? some good NIFO experiences. Um, my for I'd say my first week, it, at least it seemed like my first week. It might've been a couple of weeks, but they throw you right to the wolves with this job. Um, you know, unlike other agencies that you may want to do similar things, you're usually going to have to work your way up for many years. And with us, I've found a big advantage is that, you know, I was in New York maybe one or two weeks and they said, Hey, all right, the Colombian first lady's coming in. We have a detail on her. You're going to be the lead advance. I was like, okay, damn, <laughs> we didn't waste any time. So uh, myself and another newer uh, classmate of mine rolled out and advanced. It was just an escort detail. Um, but it was, it was really good. And, Everything went well, so it was kind of, you know, getting that first one under your belt was, was really good. But uh, after that, they just, you know, the, the details rolled in nonstop. It was one after the other. Um, but as far as some memorable ones, I had, um, I'm on my, I think, seventh or eighth Secretary of State right now. I started in the Powell days. And um, he dropped the ball in New York City for New Year's Eve, I think, going into 2004. And that was a really great detail. We, um, we got to walk through Times Square. You know, everyone's, uh, everyone's in those closed pens that they have to stay in. And you get to freely walk through Times Square on New Year's Eve with Secretary Powell, Mayor Bloomberg. Um, and, you know, had some great photos from it. And uh, it, was, it was real protection, too. People trying to reach out and, you know, say hi and touch these guys. And I was right rear. So... It was just a hands-on type thing, and that was a lot of fun. So uh, that was one nice, memorable protection detail. Um, you know, there, there's just so many to choose from, man. I don't know where you want me to start. I really don't. <laughs> yeah, no, it's all good. You know, whatever, whatever you got, I think anything is uh, – is, is almost any DS story is a good story, for, for yeah. particularly for those that are aspiring, aspiring to be. Um, yeah, Powell was – so how was Powell as a, as a – I don't know if you can get into this actually, but uh, you know, um, you had Powell, then you had uh, Condoleezza Rice, yes. right? And I hear she was well liked and well loved. Uh, now, yeah. oh, were you ever? Did you do a TDY two secretaries detail out of New York? So I never TDY'd onto the detail. I did many SD trips, secretaries detail trips, um, but I never TDY'd onto the detail, and I, that actually stands now to this day. I've never done a full rotation on the detail. Uh, but I've done probably, uh, I couldn't add them up. I haven't added them up. Um, many, many SD trips um, over the years. Yeah. So as far as where were you, where were you going with uh, who did what with you know, Powell, then, then Rice, then. Yeah. Well, you say yeah. you, you, you went through, I think you've been around for eight different secretaries of state. Yeah. I think it's eight. So, I'd have to see, yeah, but count back a little. Lots of trips with Hillary when, uh, when Secretary Clinton was in office, um, lots of trips with her, lots of trips with Secretary Kerry when he was in office. Um, and then I, I guess they tailed off a little more over the years, but that's kind of by choice. But uh, yeah, I'll give, you, I'll give you my assignments overall, and then we can go back to the NIFA thing. So I did the New York field office uh, for three years, and I was a 2501, so I was a Foreign Service Special Agent. Uh, joined knowing what I was getting into, wasn't necessarily, you know, looking to become an 1811 at the time. Um, 
three years at NIFO. And then I was this, I got my first choice of assistant regional security officer, ARSO Musket Oman. Um, great place, beautiful country, great people, good office, because it was just a two-man shop, which means you have the regional security officer and then you have the assistant regional security officers, just the two of us. And as such, I got to run all the programs that the RSO didn't want to handle. Um, did that for two years and then was actually going to go back to knife as a supervisor. And on the bid list, I saw St. Louis and it was, it was, a, it was showing as a new position. It wasn't an incumbent position. So thought it over and said, you know what? Chance to run my own shop. Cause the rack job was on there, which uh, for anyone not knowing it's the resident agent in charge. So the St. Louis office is a smaller resident office of Chicago. And it was the rack job. So I applied for that. I ended up getting it. Came back to St. Louis because, you know, chance to run my own office. Um, I knew the cost of living was good out here. Be able to buy a house at the time because I think I was only 30, 31. Um, and I said, you know, the worst that happens if I don't like it, in two years, look to go somewhere else. So new experiences are always a big thing for me. Um, but I, I really enjoy all things domestic. And I don't really enjoy the RSO job. Now, let me qualify this by saying I never bash our job. I think it's awesome. I think the guys that love being RSOs, it's amazing. They do fantastic jobs. I just did not really take this job to do management of programs. And I mean, I did take the job to do that, I guess, but I didn't realize how much of it was going to be get up, leave your house, go to the embassy, manage your guard force, manage all your, you know, residential security programs and then go home. So for me, that wasn't really in my wheelhouse. I learned a lot and I had some really good, I had my first RSO was wonderful. Um, really good friend of mine to this day. And he's now really high up in the organization. Um, learned a real big swath of knowledge from him, I guess you could say. And, uh, you know, it, it was a good experience, but I just knew that I was not going to be an RSO. I didn't know how. Because as you know, this, the progression in this job is you're going to be an RSO. But I, I knew I didn't want to be. So when I went back to St. Louis, got the rack job, uh, I extended for a third year. And in that third year, they came out with the 1811, um, which I assume you've talked about before. So, um, you know, the, the purpose of that job and why we have them, uh, I think, is a, a really important role within the organization. But yeah, so I switched over in 2009, and I've been in St. Louis ever since. Yeah, so I had Kevin Williams on the last podcast. Yeah, Kevin's a good friend. Um, and Kevin is uh, newer to the 1811 spot than you are. You've been there a while. Uh, but, yeah, he gave right. a little background on the, on the difference of 1811 and 2501. And there's sometimes some confusion. If people are new into researching DS, they're, they're, <laughs> sure. they question the, uh, well, hold up, I'm not in 1811, and, and you know, once they research a little more or listen to what we're talking about and they realize it's the same thing, except right. different service scale, uh, overseas work, obviously. Uh, but 
Well, all right. So if you don't have if you don't have any pressing cases in NIFO, I want to talk about Oman a little bit, although that's okay. not, not the most exciting for you uh, since you don't, <laughs> you don't love uh, that. But I want to know, uh, you know, for people that are just getting into listening and learning about overseas work, you know, for me, from being from back in the day, small town Louisiana, right? People that apply for these jobs from all over, and they might Absolutely. not know where Scott Oman is. So if you can tell us a little bit about where it is. Just uh, about your, you, you mentioned programs, what programs you ran. Um, yeah, sure. Kind of threat um, you faced there. So again, I was the assistant RSO, so the ARSO, and I was the only one. Um, steep learning curve. So before you become an RSO or an ARSO, you go back through training. Uh, in addition to our basic agent training, you have to go back through BRSO, basic RSO training. They try the best they can to teach you what the job is, what you're going to be doing, how to deal with it. Uh, you know, you get certified in writing cables and um, I believe, what's the other one? The, the contract class, the COR, contract all, officer. All the fun right? stuff. All the fun stuff. Um, but that, the, as, as much as they put together a good training program, it does not prepare you for being the RSO or the RSO. So, uh, to answer your question, Oman is on the Arabian Peninsula, east of Saudi Arabia, north of Yemen, um, and then to the southeast of the UAE, the United Arab Emirates. So it's right on the water. It's a very important people don't a lot of people have never heard of Oman, um, but it's a very important strategic location for the United States, given our relationship with the Omanis. Um, Muscat, the capital, is on the north of Oman, so it's on the coast. It has a coastline right on the Gulf, and the country itself has, I, I couldn't tell you how many miles of coastline, but it's a lot. A gorgeous country, absolutely beautiful. Um, really hidden gem with regard to uh, diving. If you're a diver, it has the best diving in the world. I'm not a diver, but I heard it's got the most amazing diving. Uh, beaches, resorts. Uh, my house was incredible. We, I, I pulled up, I got there. You get there like two in the morning because it's so hot. You have to land at night. The runways are too hot for planes to get there during the day. Um, so I got greeted by one of the staff off the plane and took us to our house. And I pulled up to this gate and I looked at the house and said, you've got to be kidding me. Is this really mine? Because you got to understand when you go through BRSO, as I'm sure you did, um, you're at a hotel for however many weeks it was i can't remember uh 12 weeks something like that great automatic diamond status with hilton <laughs> but as far as you know family life and living in a hotel you get used to it and then you pull up to this palatial you know house and it, it's yours so huge advantage of living overseas for those that don't know is uh, usually the housing is really wonderful so uh yeah it got there started doing the work and um Man, it was, yeah, two years of learning really what this job is. What, uh, you mentioned programs. Yeah. Um, and uh, we don't, I don't usually dig deep into to these and we don't have to go too deep. But if you can, tell me a few of the <coughs> programs. You said the programs that maybe the RSO wasn't handling and that you got to handle. Um, yeah, I know you mentioned residential security. Maybe yeah. talk a little bit about that and then uh, whatever other programs you Sure. Yeah. Um, well, I had uh, everyone has a guard force at their embassy that is the first line of defense. Uh, you know, as the as the local host nation law enforcement, uh, 
will be responsible for the security outside of your gates, the first line of defense at your gates are usually locals that are employed by the embassy as guards. And they fall under the RSO program. And obviously, I know you know this because I saw your most recent uh, celebration of your your time overseas. And that was, that was really cool to see, by the way. Um, so, yeah, the local guard program can be usually managed in one of two ways, um, either direct hires or contract force. And I was lucky enough, in my opinion, I think was the better option, is that I had a direct hire program. So we were able to interview, hire, and fire uh, whomever we wanted and didn't need to go through the contract um, and what, whatever headaches that may or may not have uh, brought with it, I, I couldn't tell you because I was lucky, if not, lucky enough, in my opinion, not to have to go through a contract. So um, managing the guards is one program. They have a local guard supervisor who was usually the person I delegated the authority to run the schedule to show them, you know, keep everybody running. And then if I needed to get involved with certain issues, whether it's, uh, you know, dereliction of duty, we had one guy that was, you know, fell asleep in the guard shack and he caught him. And so you, you actually do have to do managerial um, decision-making managerial roles when it comes to local guards, but all in all, it's usually a really good experience, especially if you, get creative and build morale and, um, you know, try to bring something new that maybe your predecessor didn't, didn't do. So I, I enjoyed the guard program. Um, another program I really enjoyed that we won't talk about, but it was, it was a really fun program that I, I liked running some other guys. Um, and then the residential security program we'll talk about. So basically whenever you have the housing that I mentioned that we all get assigned to, um, the, there's a pool, a housing pool, and this housing pool will assign new arrivals to the embassy to live in certain houses in certain areas of town. It's not necessarily a compound, depending on where you are. So I can only speak for Oman. We lived out in town. We, we did not have a compound at the embassy. We were not on embassy grounds. We were out in various areas of Muscat. And I was in an area called Shatil Kurum, which was basically a mile from the beach. It was the beach district and uh, it was beautiful. Um, but in, in anyway, I digress. The, the housing board will assign a family based on their size to a certain size house. Well, before that certain house can enter under a lease, the RSO shop has to sign off on its uh, security. Is it in a safe neighborhood? Is it one of the approved neighborhoods? Is it, um, is it safe to live in as far as is there a perimeter around there? Is there a lock gate? Do you need a lock gate? Again, every, every post is different, but whatever your requirements are in country, the residences under the residential security program have to fit. And that was one of my jobs as ARSO was to go out to the different houses and perform um, the surveys of these houses saying, do we have X, Y, and Z in place that is on the checklist to approve someone to live in that house. Yeah. Um, I had, so two things, I had a direct hire guard force as well, um, in Ho Chi Minh city. And I, uh, Fantastic. I agree that I, I didn't, I didn't run the guard force in her bill. I suppose I was a backup. So when the guy went on his three week leave, you know, I, I supported 
and I'm with you. I think direct hire is the way to go just because you, you mentioned the hiring, firing, all that. You have complete control, but the training as well, the training aspect, uh, <coughs> you could kind me, of, sorry. if you had a good, good, good shift supervisors and a good uh, guard force supervisor, you can kind of model that however you want. And, and there's no, uh, no, no middleman. Right. Uh, basically. Um, and in residential security, yeah, same thing. Had that as well. Uh, not the most exciting. Some places, though, some of these big agencies have a residential security coordinator, and it'll be like an yeah. EFM that kind of takes that off your hand. I think residential security and the BI program, the background investigations, is probably the two uh, least desirable programs. Yeah, I was, AR, I was so. the BI guy there, too. So we – being in a two-man shop in Oman was it was a curse and a blessing at the same time I got to experience and do all of the jobs whether you want to call it the glamorous jobs the not glamorous jobs just all the RSO RSO jobs um so yeah I I had to do the BIs as well background investigations where people were up for renewal usually of you know people in country Americans in country who were up for their renewal you had to do their interviews and you had a book to go by and uh, yeah, it, it, it's definitely not one of the more sought after assignments in my opinion, uh, but it's important and it has to get done. But it, it, at the time it fell under me and I don't know if it still does or not, but uh, yeah, that, that, that was not one that I really, you know, uh, although I got to tell you, I did have one, let's see how much I, I, I I'm not going to drop names obviously, but I had an interesting background. Um, where I was doing a recertification of a guy who actually turned out to be one of the hostages in Iran when, when that embassy was taken over and they, they were taken hostage. So that was kind of cool. You never know what you're going to find on this job. And when we were sitting there just talking, you know, here's a regular background investigation. And then we got into, you know, certain time periods and he, he came out with, yeah, I was, I was one of the hostages. I was like, get out of here. So we kind of took a left turn and talked about his experience and then finally had to get back on track with, uh, you know, checking the certain boxes. But Are you still in touch with this guy? And can you connect me? No, excuse me. Um, I, I really honestly, if you gave me a list of the hostages, I couldn't even pick out who I interviewed. It was that long ago. Yeah, but uh, it was it was a memorable one. Yeah. What uh? So Oman's in a part of the world that can be considered, you know, high uh, terrorist threats. Uh, you know, with Yemen nearby and the Houthi rebels kind of taking over. What what type of threats uh, did you face? Did you have any concern and or threats that you had to get ahead of, mitigate? Uh, and what other uh, type of threats did you deal with as an agent on the ground there? So yeah. Uh, as you said, the region was higher in threats. Where we were in Oman, again, this is back in 2005 and six. So I, I don't know what the snapshot's like now. And even if I did, we probably wouldn't get into details. But um, at the time, the country itself, very good relations, um, not an overwhelming worry of being in Oman. It wasn't a separate. You know, you didn't have to leave your family behind. Everyone had their families there. Um, my daughter was born there, actually. <coughs> Excuse me. And, um, yeah, the country itself, it was a lovely place to be. I, I felt, you know, uh, 
I felt like my family was safe. I felt pretty safe. But again, of course, anything could happen at any time, as we well know. And yeah, there were, there were things that popped up that I had to deal with. And of course, when did they happen? When my RSO took vacation and I was acting. Um, so yeah, I had to deal with some things directly. Uh, I would say the, the biggest thing that I had to do ever there, and luckily for me, this is the only thing I had to deal with, was uh, a white powder scare incident. Uh, we had the, I think it was one of our computer guys, and he worked the mailroom as well. And I was acting RSO, and my boss was on vacation, so it's just me. And uh, I get a call. Now, this guy, was he's known to be a jokester. He's a good guy. And Wayne was his name. So Wayne calls me up and uh, he's like, hey, um, I'm in the mailroom. I just, we, we have a broken package here and there's, there's white powder all over. And I said, I laughed. I actually was like, yeah, okay, whatever. He goes, no, man, I'm serious. I was like, oh, all right. And you know the whole corny phrase or the, you know, when you hear people say my training just kicked in, everything switches and you go right into checklist mode okay i have to call the ambassador i have to call this i have to do this we have to shut the vents down we have to do whatever um whatever your procedures are so we initiated a full decom of the mailroom the employees we evacuated the whole embassy we set up our hazmat decon and we went through it anyone that was exposed i had the pleasure of scrubbing people down in their birthday suit and um, at the end of the day, it turned out to be, <laughs> it was just talcum powder that, uh, that got delivered. <laughs> no one bothered to tell someone that they were putting this in their shipment. And uh, they mailed it through the mail and it just didn't make it in one whole package. So uh, we lucked out at the end of the day, but it was a absolute um, great experience looking back on, you know, it was a drill, but it was the real thing. And luckily it turned out not to be a real thing, but it was a real thing. Good on the mailroom for finding it. Yeah. Uh, and, and putting, if I didn't, I've never heard it put like that, but a checklist mode is a good way to do it. That's a, a, yeah. Checklist mode uh, comes in handy a lot of times. Yeah. Uh, and that's not a small endeavor to, uh, to, to, to break down and do a whole, you know, uh, hazmat quote unquote hazmat operation. <laughs> and, yeah. And scrub was, people down. There's a lot of people involved as stations, you know, you got to go through and, to and you get to know someone really well. I bet. <laughs> yeah. I bet. <laughs> Wade and I were good buddies after that. <laughs> yeah. How was the, how was the, uh, so did you do any liaison with the, I imagine you did uh, liaison with the, the local or an, an equivalent of federal state police there. Oh, absolutely. Did yeah. you, how were those guys and their capabilities? So over in Oman, they were the ROP, the Royal Oman police. And they were fantastic. These guys, um, not only were they affable, approachable, professional, they were knowledgeable and capable. Um, we had a, a murder investigation that they were lead on along with our, um, our legat at post that took the lead on a murder investigation, but we were involved. Um, and to see how they ran their investigation from start to finish of this murder that involved an American. That's why we were um, involved. It was a American who was married to an Omani and 
I don't remember the details of who got killed or who was a suspect, whatever it was, they worked the investigation thoroughly and beautifully. Like the book they produced to show their steps and the evidence, it was just, it was very impressive. So, so uh, my experience with the ROP was nothing but positive. Um, not only on their investigative capabilities, but their, their willingness to support us, their ability to support us, and their, uh, their patience with different situations that maybe weren't driven by the RSO, but the RSO had to deal with. And I'll give you an example. Uh, there was a going away party that was going to be held, and uh, the ambassador wanted to invite everybody. And we said, what do you mean, everybody? He said, well, I want to put in the paper. I want to. I want to say that we're going to have a party, and uh, in the meeting, it was me and the ambassador and my RSO, and I'm sitting there listening to this kind of, you know, the New Yorker in me came out going, "What the hell are you talking about? What do you mean you're going to invite everybody?" But I'm sitting that to myself. I look over at my RSO, and he's just nodding. Okay, all right. I'm looking. I'm going. What do you mean? Okay, all right. I didn't say that, but I'm thinking, just looking, you know, shooting glances, and he said, okay. Uh, no problem, sir. Yeah, we'll we'll get it done. Sat with our ROP counterparts sometime in the next couple of days, and uh, this is when I really learned a lot from my RSO. He sat, and we had the meeting, and you do all the pleasantries as they do in the Middle East, and uh, we had our tea, and we had our dates, and uh, everyone told stories for a while, and then when we got down to business, my RSO said, oh, well, Again, paraphrasing, he said, you know, the ambassador wants to have a going away party for himself and he's inviting everybody. And their eyes just looked and my RSO kind of just stared right back at him, waiting. And they, they said, absolutely not. There's no, no way. We will support the party. We will provide all the perimeter security, all the interior security, but it's going to be a guest list. And it, so what he actually ended up doing was relying on the ROP to provide the shutdown to the ambassador to say no. So we went back and said, Hey, we told them what you wanted. We tried to get what we could, but they're insisting that you can't just put it in the paper. And the ambassador's like, Oh, okay. I get that. So brilliant move. It was a brilliant move. I learned that day, like, huh, okay. It's chess. You know, it's uh, there's certain situations you can't just knee jerk. And I mean, if it were just me, I, I would have been, in deep i would have been telling the ambassador sir we can't do that you know and then he would have said i could do whatever the hell i want i'm the ambassador but i learned a lot my rso is just yep okay um and the best part is to the point of the rop in their professionalism of course couched everything in a very uh, particular way of their concerns and why they were going to say no they didn't say in the meeting absolutely not they Ultimately, we're saying absolutely not, but they came out in the most tactful way of, you know, we, we don't think that's a good idea. and This is why. But they were saying no. Um, so they were on board with dealing with us and what we had to deal with. Um, so, yeah, it was a really good experience. And uh, it was uh, it, it was nice to see that you get out of your, your comfort zone of thinking, you know, oh, U.S. law enforcement, we know everything and we're the only ones who know anything. And you start realizing really quickly that there's a lot of smart people in the world. 
Yeah. That you, relying on local uh, law enforcement or local security apparatuses is key overseas. Uh, particularly as a young DS agent, we respectfully know nothing when you come to these other countries compared Definitely. to what they, what they go through and what they do. And it's kind of one of those uh, wink and a nod moments. With, it was, with, yeah. Not only with you and the RSO, but with between the RSO and the ROP. Uh, like well, I, I would say specifically with the RSO and the ROP. For yeah. me, it was more like a pat on the head and you'll learn. Young man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it was great, yeah. Was the ambassador a political appointee or a... a, a oh, the first, our first ambassador was a... No, I had both career. I had two career ambassadors. So uh, they both knew what they were doing. One was, uh, they were totally different um, personalities. But yeah, both, both of my ambassadors are career ambassadors. Yeah, and that's something uh, maybe I'll, I'll do, uh, I'll talk on a little bit later is mm-hmm. the difference between a career ambassador and a political appointee or what could be the differences between those because some of these political appointees have no diplomatic <clears throat> experience whatsoever. They could be from any sector, anywhere. And, Agreed. Um, you know, you, you never know what you're going to get. And some of them are great. Um, right. Others uh, are a little more, uh, just don't know as much. And they're, and they're a little, little more difficult to understand and, and you know, please. Um, well, cool, man. So, all right. So you went to the rack. Yes. Uh, tell me what you're doing at the rack, what kind of cases you're working or whatever you can share, uh, about the type of casework, uh, <coughs> at 11. Well, you were the only, you were the only rack, the only 2501 there at the time you said, right? Or- I, I reopened the office. It was me. I was the rack and, uh, we had one other agent come in about i want to say three months after i got there so we had office space in st louis in the federal building uh and our actually we had a contract background investigator who was in the st louis area and she used that space to work so that's why the the space existed but there was no ds office here um i know chicago was covering any cases they would you know send crim trips they would uh send guys on crim trips down to the missouri uh, Kansas, wherever area and, uh, covered out of Chicago. So when I got there, it was really not a very well organized office. It was some excess office cubicles laying around and I was starting with nothing basically. So I, I, I built this office from 2007 on, um, now I'm not saying it was all me. It was obviously when we got organized and were able to put procurement of actual cubicles and put them together and make it look like a real office. We started operating on a more, um, <coughs> more organized functioning office space. But yeah, it was, it was me. It was one other agent and that was it for a while. We eventually added an admin staff or uh, investigative. Uh, no, nah, it wasn't our specialist yet. It was our investigative assistant IA. So then it was three bodies. Then we eventually bumped up to adding another agent, and then I eventually switched over to the 1811, and we added the rack. So we've grown over the years from just me to um, the rack, me, three, one, two, I think there's three, maybe four, 2501s, and then two admins. So we have an IA and an IS now. So we are light years ahead of when when I got back to the office. It sounds like it. Yeah. Uh, 
um, as an, so I want to make it clear to the yeah. listeners. Kevin talked a little bit about it too, but but um, I don't know if we made this clear. So as an eighteen eleven, obviously you're the continuity in the office, and I would imagine, and and correct me if I'm wrong, you oftentimes will take on the bigger cases that might have some longevity to them, but you're also and. and you still do some of the would would be considered to some young agents at least fun stuff. You still get to go on secretary's trips. You still get to go on DP trips and to UNGA. Um, am I right? Tell me a little bit about it. You are correct. So um, I do everything domestic. So there are some guys who really prefer the criminal investigations. There's some guys who really prefer the protection. And sometimes you can make your way into one or the other with if, if you're just gung-ho about criminal investigations and you're really good at them, you could end up working them really hard. And sometimes you'll have a, a supervisor who will let you do that and leave you alone about protection. Not all the time, because you're still expected to do both. Um, or you could find yourself on the secretary's detail as a 2501. And uh, some guys focus on the protection. I like both. I, I, I learned a lot as the RSO or ARSO in the RSO shop. But I told you I didn't like it. On the domestic side, I love both. I truly do. Um, I'll work a case. I'll go out. I'll make arrests. I'll prosecute people. I'll you know, get some, quote, unquote, bad guys off the street. And then I will go into protection detail the next week for however long. And I enjoy both. So, yes, I get to do both. Um, one of the things as the 1811, not every 1811 is my level of I'm a non-supervisor I'm a I'm a GS 13 so I am one of the I don't know how we could tell your listeners I, I I guess you could say worker bee I'm not a boss but at the same time I have held boss positions on protection details and we can get into that in a second but as a the job that I took is non-supervisory so, yes, I am the continuity in the office, as I love to hear from everybody. I want to get that tattooed on me, actually. Continuity in the office. Um, as Kevin may, I didn't listen to Kevin's podcast. I actually did that on purpose. I'd love to hear what Kevin had to say, but I wanted to come into this clean with no uh, seeds planted or, you know, talk about what he didn't talk about, make sure I didn't, whatever. So I don't know what he covered with you. So um, <laughs> I'll back up and basically say what the 1811 is what we do how you get it etc a lot of agents don't come directly into the job as an 1811 there are some uh that do get hired that way but that's very rare we have a few um computer forensics uh, positions that are 1811 within each field office that sometimes people get hired directly from other agencies but for most of the time, the 1811 with diplomatic security is a former 2501 within the agency. Depends on the vacancy announcement, but historically, that's most 1811s within TS. And personally, <coughs> sorry, I get this little cough. Um, I really think it's important for a person going for the 1811 job or who thinks they want to be an 1811 and convert from 2501 to have at least one ARSO tour under their belt. Um, I, I don't think you're serving yourself any good, doing yourself any good by trying to switch over to 1811, not knowing if you even like RSO. You know, someone could go over there and fall in love with it and never know if they 
tried to switch right over to 1811. Uh, but also it speaks to experience of, you know, years on the job and knowing what your, uh, what your strengths are, I think. So um, I, I digressed from you there, Cody, though. What, what was your original question about the... Uh... Yeah, I was just talking, just in general terms that, that I, I wanted just to make it clear that... That, uh, that I still get to you, do stuff. Yeah, you still get to do... You're not just, I don't say stuck, but just in one location, only doing crim. You yeah. still get to travel. You still get to, 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 to be part of a different, again, DP, Dignitary Protection, and, and Secretary's Detail, if, if necessary. Um, I imagine at, at your level, and, and, and you have, you know, you've built a lot of personal capital in the, in the organization where you can probably pick and choose a little more than maybe some young agent could on what details you go to, but you still have the opportunity to do that as an 18 level is what I'm getting at. Yes, you do. You, uh, you absolutely do. And um, 1811s will get a bad rap a lot of times with uh, the 2501s with uh, what they'd like to call cherry picking assignments, but it's really not as uh, it, that's not really the case most of the time. For I'll give you for instance, uh, under our major events coordination unit, MECU, they are the unit that handles the Olympics, the World Cup. Uh, you know, we we send teams over to whatever country these events are being held in, and we we will protect the U.S. athletes at the Olympics, for instance. I've gotten this reputation for, uh, oh, you're doing another Olympics. Well, I've only done two in my whole career. I've been on 20 years, and I have to correct people all the time. I said, no, I'm not the guy you're thinking of. You, you might be, <laughs> you're thinking of someone else. Where, where do I get this reputation from? Um, I did Rio in 2016, and then I did Tokyo this past summer in 2021. should have been 2020. Um, I did do the Pan Am Games in Peru in 2018. Um, as far as major events go, that's it though. I, I, I'm not the guy that cherry picks these assignments, but, uh, you're, you're right though, that yes, I, I, I have the opportunity sometimes to, um, if I have to say no, whether it's a family obligation or, you know, you have leave put in, I can usually say, Hey, I can't make this one. And it's not a, you have to go. I, I, I rarely run into you have to go. And that's, that's really a testament to our management. You know, they, they're really good at shuffling the bodies around and they have a hard job, uh, especially these days with, uh, I'm sure you know what's going on domestic wise for us with the amount of details we're running and how thin we are spread. If you don't, I'll talk to you offline about that, but, uh, uh, we're, we're pretty thin right now and, um, we're, we're getting worked really bad. So, it's a good thing and a bad thing. And again, it doesn't bother me, but it definitely affects the, um, the schedule and how much you're on the road. But yes, 1811s get to do it all. Um, we run some really good cases. You asked about, do we get some of the bigger cases? Yes and no. Um, I've had some pretty good cases. I've had some pretty not so great cases, but they're all, they're all important on their own level. Um, so yeah, let's get, let's talk about then some of the casework in, in, uh, in, uh, St. Louis and, and, uh, maybe give us a, a couple of the cases, some of the, some that might be, you know, more satisfying and that went, you know, that, uh, you went a little deeper into. Yeah, sure. So we, uh, cover out of Missouri, um, for those who don't know geography in this area in Midwest, St. Louis is on the east side of Missouri. We border Illinois and then Kansas city is on the west side of Missouri border Kansas. We cover all of Missouri, all of Kansas, 
Southern Illinois and Western Kentucky for our criminal cases. So I could theoretically drive from Louisville, Kentucky to the Kansas, Colorado border. And all that's all our region. Uh, quite a large area to cover with, you know, four agents or five agents. <coughs> but, um, that said, one of our cases that I remember was, I think it was about 10 years ago. Um, it wasn't my case, but I was involved with it with my partner, Kemi. Shout out to Kemi. Um, fantastic person, amazing partner, and would love to have her back. Um, she had a case that she got a warrant for a guy out of Springfield, Missouri, for passport fraud, identity theft, um, and he, he was in the wind. He took off. A lot of the times they don't take off, believe it or not. A lot of people will stay put and deal with their case. But once in a while, you'll get one that runs, and this guy took off. Uh, couldn't find him. No leads. Fast forward maybe, I don't know, six months to a year probably. And um, Cammy came to my desk and said, hey, look at this. And it was another passport fraud with the same picture of the guy that she had the warrant for. Different information, though. And we both looked at each other and this is a Friday and like ready to leave for the weekend. And I looked at her and said, do you want to go get them? She goes, yeah, let's go. So what we were able to do is pick apart the new information we had compared to the old stuff. And he had some new addresses, new phone numbers, whatever that we believed he was in Kansas. We looked up uh, the city it was Pittsburgh, Kansas. Didn't know there was a Pittsburgh, Kansas till this job. Um, leave it to a kid from New York to actually get to know Kansas and Missouri as well as I do. It's crazy. Um, so yeah, we looked Pittsburgh, Kansas and said, let's go. So we got the authorization to get a hotel and, uh, we hit the road and it was about, I, I don't know, five, maybe five hours. Drove down, got there Friday evening. And, uh, next day we met with the owner of a UPS store who, um, hosted this guy's new mailing address for a passport he was seeking to get. So we started there to say, do you know this guy has either come in here before? And she's like, yeah. She goes, Some, a lot of times he's here before I open and is eager to check his mail. So we ended up getting him is the, the bottom line. But I'm going to back up a second on this case. When we were initially looking for him, still in the Springfield area, I believe, he had stolen the identity of a teenager who had killed himself. And, uh, you know, you try to not get emotional about any of these cases. You just work them. You see if they get prosecuted. You hope they do. And, you know, you bring the person to justice is the ultimate goal. But it's, you know, we're all human. And it's hard to not let emotions get into it. And, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a personal drive when you have one like this that's like, man, this guy really stepped over the line. Um, who would do something like this, you know? So in searching for him, uh, some of the database checks we did led us to a house that we ended up knocking on the door. And a guy answered, and we were surprised it wasn't our guy. We, we thought all indications were, man, this guy you know, has some guts. He, he got a house in this identity and this is where he is. So we were confused when this other guy answered the door and we explained who we were and what we were doing. Turns out that was the father 
of the kid who had committed suicide. What happened was in the database checks, we didn't realize there was a senior and junior aspect to it. So not real name, Bob Smith Sr., Bob Smith Jr. We were looking for junior. We thought the, you know, John Doe assumed Bob Smith Jr.'s identity, and we ended up knocking on the door of what the database showed Bob Smith Sr. That was his house. So we're like, oh, we see what we did wrong. No wonder this guy answered the door. So he said, what's this all about? And we explained the whole thing to him, and he started crying. He was like, oh, my God, you got to get this guy. So uh, on the day that we were able to get that information that led us to Pittsburgh, Kansas, uh, needless to say, both of us were pretty hyped that we put him in custody. And uh, we were able to do a search on his car and see some stuff that uh, went into evidence that was, you know, that, that hammered him, basically. And uh, we were able to go back to the dad and say, hey, we got him. So that was extremely satisfying. Um, you know, passport fraud, important investigation wise. I mean, the investigation into passport fraud, the, the passport being the U.S. State Department's document, that is what our responsibility is to ensure, you know, that these don't fall into the wrong hands. And a lot of the time, quite frankly, you get cases that aren't as satisfying as that. You get them that are, you know, whether it's a person who is in the country using false papers and they just took a shot to get a passport and they want to stay and work and have a family. You can understand, but at the same time, they still broke the law. Those are, those are a lot of what we run into. But when you have the ones that are like this, that you get to tell the father of a guy whose identity was stolen that you caught the bad guy, um, it, it, it keeps you going. It really does. Yeah, I bet. I've, I've heard of a few cases, uh, not, none with suicide, and which is just another level, but of, and I'm sure you've worked more than one of, of uh, someone using a death certificate to claim a, a uh, right. you know, a, a new identity and then potentially apply uh, for citizenship. What was his background? What did, was he just not here legally or was he trying to avoid? The <laughs> no, this, criminal? so this was a U.S. citizen. Okay. Um, white male in his early thirties who had been a career criminal of passing bad checks. Um, you know, just someone who did not have a legit source of income and had to start spinning his wheels in any criminal element he could. And it, it led him to trying to get a whole new identity. And he did some research and he found a, a death certificate and was able to obtain it and spin it into his own identity without anyone really realizing until we got involved. Yeah, and, and that's a good point. That statute, 1028 Big A, uh, was aggravated identity, right? That's yes. A, that's yes. a common uh, uh, nexus charge that we run into with, with passport fraud and that we uh, in, investigate. And I, a little bit on the passport, like, you mm -hmm. know, it's when you, when you talk about, oh, we investigate passport fraud, people are like, oh, that's a white collar, that's this, that, that. The passport in Vietnam, our air so I was working some different cases. You know, they get to they get to do some pretty cool cases when they're overseas. And uh, one of the guy he interviewed said, "Pass U.S. passports. If you can get a U.S. passport, uh, and and somehow back in the the days before there were the, the chips were involved, it was, it was easier to uh, obtain a passport and modify it to make it you know usable." And they were saying they were going back then. This is a 
you know, 2009 time frame you know, or, or 2010 10 time frame, uh, they were going for like 50 grand. You know, right. the U.S. passport is the key to the world. You know, you can go in so many different countries without a visa with a U.S. passport, and it, it gives you a certain level of, I'd say credibility. I don't want to say credibility, but it, but it does get let you get around the world a little, little easier if you can get those passports. So it is significant. It's significant. Um, it's valuable both financially and otherwise, because here's the thing. Um, a U.S. passport does not indicate citizenship, despite what people think. It, you know, people say, well, I have my passport. I'm a U.S. citizen. No, you have a passport because you were able to prove you were a U.S. citizen and the government decided to issue you one based on that proof. You having a passport does not make you a citizen. And that's what a lot of people get confused about. Um, and the whole proof of that is someone obtains an, a passport, a legitimate passport, illegally. does not make you a citizen. But it is such a trusted document that a lot of times it is not questioned. And that's where we come into play. That's where our fraud prevention managers, before the cases even get to us, that first level of screening is so important to see if something is uh, wrong, if something is, just doesn't make sense. And then once they determine that, hey, I think we have something here, that's, that's when they'll you know, forward it to our, our office. Uh, but yeah, it, it's a valuable document. And look, no, um, what, to your point, what people, I don't know who they are, but a lot of people do say, oh, it's not, you know, not, not the sexiest of crimes. You're not, you know, you're not busting a drug ring. You're not busting a, a child porn ring. But guess what? A lot of people aren't committing passport fraud just for shits and giggles. They are doing this as, I hate to use the phrase, the gateway crime. Uh, kind of like people refer to marijuana as a gateway drug. It's, it's passport fraud in and of itself. Yeah, it might not be you know, the, the stiffest penalties or the quote unquote sexiest crime, but usually people are doing it for other reasons. And I know you and I can talk obvious about the 9-11 stuff. Hijackers obtaining false U.S. passports uh, or false passports or both, uh, not necessarily U.S. passports, but, you know, fraudulent passports in general is a crime. Um, for the most part, we investigate U.S. passports. We, we have gotten involved in other passports um, that I can talk about too. Um, but yeah, I, you know, my first case at a NIFO back in up to my NIFO days, my first real, my first arrest was a white male in his fifties who, um, changed his identity and tried to get a U.S. passport as an Irish national that he claimed he naturalized or whatever the case was. He was a sexual offender that did not want to register in his real name. So he tried to totally change his identity, and that included a passport. So, yeah, passport fraud itself, it's usually coupled with something else. And that's why it's so important that we take every case and really look into it. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, awesome. All right, good, good, good on that. So as, as an 1811, you said you went to uh, several uh, – uh, not a lot. We don't want to accuse you of going to a lot of Olympics, Chris. No, no, but no. I've done the opposite. I've only done That's two. what I'm saying. I don't want to accuse you of it. That's what I'm saying. So, but you did go to two. And did, so yeah. what were your roles at those Olympics? Where were they? You mentioned it earlier, but I didn't catch sure. that. And uh, then 2016, I was in Rio de Janeiro. 
I had the Summer Olympics down there. And in 2021, should have been 2020, I did Tokyo. Um, in Rio, I, well, in both of them, I was a field liaison officer, a flow, which is what our agents usually do, uh, majority of them. Um, I say majority because you obviously have other jobs. You have the, you know, you could be in the watch center. You could be in the major events coordination unit. You could be one of the RSOs at the embassy. So while there are a lot of moving parts, there's not just one job. The majority of agents that come in for the Olympics are called field liaison officers. And what we do there is exactly what the name says. You liaise with the local host law enforcement who is ultimately responsible for security in their country. We are there as liaisons, so if something does go wrong, we are in communication with the locals who can say, hey, this is happening, this is what we're doing to mitigate it. And at the same time, we can enact our own security plan with whatever team or venue you're assigned. So for me, I was in Rio, I was assigned to the tennis venue. Um, you can read that as I was signed to the tennis team and you'd be right. I had both. Um, but sometimes you are either a venue agent or a team agent. Um, I'll give you an example. You can have, um, a multiplex, so to speak, where they host numerous games. Um, I don't know if this is an actual one, but just for argument's sake, let's say gymnastics was in the same building as fencing you can be the flow at that location and liaise with all the security personnel for that location, or you can be assigned to the gymnastics team and the, or the fencing team and travel and move around with them. So those are the two different flows. Um, for me, I had both the tennis venue and the tennis team because obviously no one else is playing tennis at the tennis venue other than the tennis team. Um, so we had, you know, we had a lot of big names. We had the, the Williams sisters were there. Uh, they got a lot of the attention. We had uh, Bethany Maddox-Sands, another big name. Jack Sock, another big name. So a lot of big tennis players. Um, Mary Jo Fernandez was the coach of the women's team, who if you, I think you're around the same age as I am. You might remember Mary Jo from back in the day. She was a player. Um, you know, a lot, a lot of big, high-profile names at this venue. Excuse me. And what I did was I built relationships with the local Brazilian police to see what their security plan was around the tennis venue, to see what our reaction would be to if something went boom, so to speak, um, or natural disaster, if, if, if something happened that we had to shelter in place or whatever the case was, what their plan was and what we would do with our people until things were settled, whether that's evacuate or if there's a medical emergency, um, et cetera. So the liaison portion is just that. We liaise with the locals, but you are also in contact with the team, their representative, and usually the players themselves. Um, the flow position is not a protection assignment. You're not in a typical protection role when you're at the Olympics. You're not there doing, uh, I hate to use the word bodyguarding, but for lack of a better word, you know, protection bodyguarding. You're not there to do that. However, when you do triage on what you have going in a certain day, 
it may turn into a quasi-protection assignment, even though it's not. I'll give you for instance, um, I had Serena Williams show up at the venue basically with hardly any of the other team around. Well, guess what? She was obviously a superstar getting most of the attention. So I'm walking with her. I'm making sure nothing happens to her. Um, I was even able to be the bad guy. Uh, I talked to her one day and said, hey, do, do you feel like talking to anyone? Or do you just want to? She goes, not really. I said, all right, then I'll tell people we have to go. So as we're walking, everyone's shouting their name. I said, we got to go. Excuse us. We got to go. So it wasn't a protection assignment, but I was helping her out with, you know, she was on venue and she was the most important person there. So uh, I got to escort her to the court, stay with her on the court, and her sister was there. So that's one example of, uh, you know, what you might run into. You definitely are in the weeds with uh, your face-to-face with these athletes. It's, it's a pretty big big deal um but at the end of the day the liaison job is just that it's you're you're there to advise the team here here's what we're going to do should something happen i'll be in touch with you i'll be here i'll be on site whatever the case may be um did the same thing for lima peru the pan am games except that i was then a supervisory flow so i had i don't even know 10 to 15 flows working under me and various locations so they were doing the liaising i was doing the managing of them and then back to 2020 or 2021 tokyo um, i was assigned to the village so the athletes village in tokyo i was uh one of two village agents and it was definitely a different posture given the COVID situation and um you know uh, unfortunately the athletes were locked down to the village so Unfortunate for them, they didn't really get to go out and enjoy the culture, go dinner, whatever. But for us, it was actually a, kind of a blessing that we didn't have to keep tabs on anyone or, you know, deal with any uh, incidents in town at all. So those are those are my assignments at the Olympics. Yeah, that one with Serena kind of demonstrates the one the versatility of the job and the flexibility and kind of critical thinking necessary for an agent. Like you could have you could have easily said, well, I'm not going to walk with her, but you chose to, cause that's your job. You know, your role and, and you stepped up and, 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 and did that. That's what I think is pretty cool. I wonder if you, if people think you went to so many because you're the face of DS at these, I feel like I see pictures of you in freaking state magazine or <laughs> in DS, whatever the DS newsletter, it might just be on your social media. I don't know, but I've seen your face. You're not hot. You're not easy to miss. You're a big guy, big yeah, guy yeah. head beard for people yeah. that don't know Chris. That's uh, our typical, so maybe, maybe uh, that's the case days. because your face <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to be like Chris with my with my new look. Yeah. Okay. Um, maybe that's why uh you know people think that because Well, like you know, I think uh, I think you're right in one aspect of uh I I've heard, I haven't seen. I've heard there's a picture of me at something somewhere in our headquarters building. So yes, I think maybe people see that. Um uh, but the other thing is look, A, I've been around a long time. I have been on numerous, numerous secretaries trips around the world. And that's where I get to meet most of my people. Uh, and when I say my people, I mean our colleagues. Uh, I get to know a lot of new faces, old faces, reconnect with friends on secretaries trips, but also um, UNGA, every UNGA. I've only missed, I think, three in my whole career. And the majority of those, back dating back to 2007, I've been the agent in charge of um, UNGA details for about 
10 or 12 years in a row. So I get to learn a lot of new faces, get to learn a lot of new names. And um, I have people come up to me and I'll, I'll recognize a face. Oh, hey, we work together. And I'm like, yeah, I know we did, but I have no idea where. And they'll pull it out. They'll say, well, well, I was your advance when you were with the NATO Secretary General. Like, oh my God, you remember that? <laughs> That's amazing. So yeah, I think it just has to deal with longevity and the fact that I've been exposed to a lot of our colleagues through our different assignments. I imagine. So I think the last time I saw you uh, was my last UNGA. You were doing a PII role. Um, you were in civilian clothes or maybe you weren't actually, maybe you were just off duty and hanging around. And I that's probably, <laughs> maybe I assumed you were working and you weren't. Yeah, you know yeah. what? You're right. Cause you had a, you had a, do you have a red St. Louis cap or have you ever had a red St. Louis? I do. Yeah. Okay, actually, yeah, you want to so hear that's... the story of how I got that? Sure, it's go a good little story there. All right. So check this out. Um, Man, what year was that? That must have also been about 10 years ago. We were uh, one of our most frequent visitors was the NATO Secretary General, um, who at the time was Anders Rasmussen, former Danish Prime Minister. His son, uh, Henrik, lives or lived, I'm assuming he's still there, but I could be wrong, in Springfield, Illinois. Married a local girl who's in the government um, the state government in Springfield. So they, they had a place there. So anytime Mr. Rasmussen would come through the area, he would want to visit his son in Springfield. Um, so I was on as one of the advance agents and we were at, man, where were we? No, it wasn't where we were. I'll, I know what I'm thinking about. Um, the schedule called for us to go to St. Louis actually from Springfield. And he wanted to do a lot of the touristy stuff, which around here is, uh, we have an amazing zoo. It's number two to yours. The San Diego Zoo is your number one. Uh, we're, I've heard we're number two, which is, it is an amazing zoo. Um, the Arch, the Botanical Gardens, uh, etc. Well, Henrik had come up to me when we were in St. Louis. We were at the Botanical Gardens. And he said, hey, Chris, uh, my dad wants to know if you have any recommendations for dinner. Well, as luck would have it, I had contacts at Bush Stadium and I said, well, does your dad like baseball? And he's like, oh, I don't know because he's Danish and they don't really, they're not huge on baseball. He said, why do you ask? And I said, well, the Cardinals are in town tonight and I could probably get us into the game if he'd like to go. He goes, let me check. He went over to Anders and said, uh, you know, whatever they said, he came back to me, he said, that would be great. I said, all right, let me work on it. So I called up um, my contact and I said, hey, um, you know, this is what I'm up to. Would it be all right to bring this guy by? Now, here's the thing. As you know, our points of contact on a interpersonal level are usually, uh, they're not fully, they're, they're not always in the professional setting. Uh, it's always professional, but you know, you become friends with these guys. So you may be doing something official, but then they're like, Hey, come on back for a game anytime you want. Okay, cool. Thanks. Well, I've done that before. And you know, I, I get to a certain location, Bush stadium and enjoy the game. Great. Well, I assumed that that's what we we're going to do. I, I just said, you know, Hey, can we go up to this club? And he's like, well, hold on a second. I'll call you back. <laughs> he called me back and said, we're all set. 
you got to come by. I'll give you the rundown. I said, all right. So I was still the advance agent. So I went to Bush. He ended up bringing me up to the owner's personal balcony. They had set up, apparently after I called my guy, he made an official call to say, hey, Secretary General NATO is going to come to the game. And the owners were just like, you got it. So they rolled out the red carpet. They brought us up to his personal balcony. They had a full spread of food. Uh, it, it was amazing. And um, while we were there, um, here comes the president of the Cardinals out on his own personal balcony with a box of hats. And he gave each, each one of us a St. Louis Cardinal red hat. So that might be the one you saw. But uh, right from the president himself, and here we had the NATO section wearing a Cardinals hat, and all of his security guys could never believe they're like, he never wears a hat. This is amazing. Um, and from then on, um, I can say who was with us at the time because he's retired now. Good friend of mine, Jim Gottschall. Um, Jim was the agent in charge of that detail. And that night, he, was, he looked at me and he said, dude, amazing job. He said, guess what? This isn't the Gottschall detail, it's the Kopech detail. <laughs> so um, I kind of earned after that. That's how I became NATO's agent in charge for about six years at UNGA. I, I inherited that detail. Yeah, rightly so. That uh, so that's a story you probably wouldn't plan on telling. And, and no, no, that was a good, good surprise. Yeah, 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 that's that's. Awesome. And that could, we could do that all night. But I know you have a cat. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. So you mentioned uh, we'll we'll talk about this because we laugh about it a lot. Um, uh, you talk about when you meet most of your people, you know, the, the the colleagues that you've met, and you and I met in South Africa. Yes. on a secretary's trip. We did. And uh, what was your role on that trip? So I was, I was, I was CP, but I was asked to do kind of a PII type thing where I dressing, you know, plain clothing and kind of blended in. Mm -hmm. Um, What was your role on that trip? I believe I was a rear. I was a left or right rear on that one. That was Cape town. And then we did a follow on to Abuja, Nigeria. I remember that very well. Yeah. Um, So yeah, I was a right rear in Cape town and I almost fell on secretary Clinton um we were walking through a i don't know if you remember how hot it was it was boiling hot full suits um she went to visit some village location and while we were there we were positioning ourselves once she was given her speech to get that concentric ring of security and i filled in a hole as we'd like to do and uh in order to get to that hole so to speak, for those who don't know what I'm talking about, if, if you're doing your concentric diamond around a protection, uh, protectee, you want to have them thoroughly surrounded, not necessarily right up on them, but you want to make sure every left, right, front, back is covered. And uh, I saw an area that needed a little further protecting, so I went to walk to that area. And as I did so, I stepped on a pallet of bricks that were unstable. And I had to pass right by the secretary when I did that. And I, I almost lost it. And she kind of looked over at me and <laughs> had her hands up. Um, so that was pretty memorable uh, for that. But, yeah, I, I was left to right rear when you and I met. Yeah, so, you know, I wanna, I'm, I'm giving self-plugs here because this is the reason I want to bring up the story is that oh boy. you told me I could not pull an all-nighter. I did. Uh, you challenged me to an all-nighter, a drink, an all-nighter drinking, um, and off-duty for the record, hundred <laughs> percent off-duty, hundred percent off-duty. 
So for a little background, you know, if you, a lot of times when you go on these trips, you'll get there four or five, maybe even six days ahead. And so yeah. I, Chris was, was well-behaved. I was a brand new agent. It's must've been what, 2010 timeframe? Nine. Nine, it was 2009. 2009. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had, and, South Africa, that was during time during Tri-Nations uh, rugby. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but I re- recall that going on. Just There were there were many TVs. We found our way to an Irish pub. Go yeah. figure. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We went to a Cuban bar as well. And at some point... <laughs> oh, we did go to a Cuban bar. That's right. <laughs> yes, no one yes. was there, but we were there. And at some point, I don't know how it got there, you and I started talking trash in a fun way. And you said... I probably, who knows how it happened, but I was going to pull an all-nighter because I was supposed to go like at what, 5.30 in the morning to go shark cage dive. 6, 6 a.m. You, you had reservations. No. Okay. Six, I didn't think 6 so, a.m. Yeah. You had reservations to go swim with the Great Whites and you wouldn't stop talking about it, which was, <laughs> which was amazing, by the way. It was absolutely amazing. Uh, and uh, I think, you know, somehow I got challenged to an all-nighter and we, we got back. I think we got back earlier than I thought we would because then I had nothing no. to do for a couple. Of, it was not early. No, no, no. It was, it was the kid rock commercial version of you said early. If you remember that commercial, that's what you did. Um, we rolled back into the hotel. It wasn't that you were challenged to an all nighter. It's just that the night was naturally fun and we ended up staying out way longer than we thought, okay. but you kept okay. saying, Man, I gotta go swim with the sharks. I gotta go swim with the sharks in the New Orleans accent. That's how I sound. Uh huh. <laughs> I gotta, I gotta swim with the sharks. And uh, we're like, dude, it is five a.m. You are not swimming with the sharks. Um, and guess what? You swam with the sharks, brother. I made it. Uh, <laughs> and, and, I, and, I, and so it was the longest hour between five and six, or whenever, or thirty minutes that I had in my life because we had. Well, drank- we told you not to go to sleep. We're like, you cannot go to bed. That's you, true. That, never that's make where it. it is. So, so. Yeah. And so I remember going and like, you know, how these hotels have these little computer labs or like, uh, you know, business centers. And I was literally trying to stay awake and talk and I planned on the computer and, and I, I was so hung over, um, riding out there It's a two and a half hour drive along the coast. I was just sick. But when I got in the, 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 the cage with those sharks, that water was cold and a shark, you know, a massive shark being that close to your face really, uh, takes the, uh, the adrenaline takes all the hangover out of you for at least a few bad. Well, you know, there, there was a story that we don't, I don't know if we made this up and just said it probably happened or if you actually did, but we, we said you probably chum the waters with uh, your own. <laughs> oh no, I didn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. I, I couldn't I, remember. I, I, uh, I might've vomited, not in the water. I, I might've thrown up uh, on yeah, that. Maybe I'd but be these, surprised if you didn't. These are some of the shenanigans that happened uh, that I can share now that I'm out uh, that go on. But we, I mean, we were well behaved. We were ready for the detail when it came. We had did all the work we needed to do. Um, and anyway, so that was, it was your and I first experience. And now we've known each other for what, 13 years now. So. Yeah, man. It's a long time. And I'll tell you what, um, as long as it's done the right way and following all the right rules, that that's actually a really big part of this job is building that camaraderie with your teammates and your you know, most of the time there's nothing else to do on some overseas trips. I mean, did you do the follow-on to Abuja? Were you there? No. Oh, yes, I did. Uh, I did. You did? Yeah, I did. And, yeah, I was CP. Yeah. Well, if, excuse me. If you remember that, um, there was nothing else to do but go up to that hotel um, lounge. Yep. So, uh, you know, that's where you get to meet your people. That's where you get to build those relationships. And they, they last they last a lifetime. They really do. Yeah, we were up there uh, because – we, there was the only place to go. So we were a lot of staff folks, a lot of line folks from the secretaries, folks. Uh, right. not protection, but secretary staff. And, right. uh, I, again, 
you drank a little. Uh, <laughs> I should have. This is 2009, Cody, by the way. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, you know, I, I remember the the shift leader was like, uh, hey, man, uh, let's just quiet down a little bit. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, but uh, uh, anyway. Who was so the was, shift leader in that? I don't remember. Uh, was it Billy? No, Jason. Jason. Which, oh, uh, we can't get into it. But anyway. I'll yeah, tell you after I, you have I know. I can't remember. That's all right. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so, well, all right. So we're running on, on two hours, but I, I want to, let's just cut through it all then. So. Has what, it been two t- hours? It's almost Man. two. We've been, well, you and I, we started chatting a little before. Yeah, that's enough. Okay. Um, but I want to make sure we finish strong. So sure. tell me of, of all you've been in two de- You just made your two decade mark, right? Your 20 years. Just past 20 years, April 1st. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. On that. Appreciate it. Yeah. Um, what is, uh, one of the, let's just, what was one of the coolest things you got to do in DS? <sighs> you know, there, uh, there is a lot of opportunities that this job affords you. I, I truly mean that. Um, if you're fortunate enough to hold on to even a part of this job, but doesn't have to be a full 20 plus year career. Um, you will have stories that no one else will have. And even in similar circles, whether it's another agency or another law enforcement job. Um, I mean, I I've met and interacted with and even become friends with a couple of celebrities who um, I never thought that would be the case. And, I used to keep a list of those I interacted with, those I saw, those I met. That's one really good part. But as far as what I think is the coolest thing, (coughs) excuse me, Um, I'll tell you, I had an assignment. And again, it was back in the 2010 era when Secretary Clinton was in office. I uh, was at my desk. And uh, the point of this is going to be you never know what's coming down the pipe. Okay. Uh, for those thinking of this career, you can be doing something one day and you get put on something else the next day and you don't know what kind of experience it's going to be. And this is my personal best one was, uh, I was in, in my office, got an email, secretary's trip. Okay. Um, I knew one of the guys on the detail, so I got some intel. Hey, where are we going? Going to London. So, all right. That, I didn't get too excited, not because London's not cool, but hey, I've been there before, and okay, it's great. I, I have a good time there, as I so showed you my uh, London Pride glass that we've been consuming from tonight. Um, so, okay, so London, got assigned to London, and uh, I get a call a couple of days before we're supposed to go, and it's uh, one of our New York agents, and uh, the the our our female agent who runs the UN and she was slated to do this trip as well. And she said, Hey, um, did you get canceled from London? So I haven't heard anything. Why? She goes, well, we all, we all got canceled out of New York. I was like, no, I haven't heard that yet. So I called up my friend who's the shift leader. I said, Hey, um, now being told that this is canceled. So he goes, no, no. Pakistan got canceled. So the guys that we had jumping into Pakistan, we pulled back to London. So we don't need as many London jump team. Um, but I need one and you're going. I said, okay. He goes, well, I got good news and bad news. I said, well, tell me. He goes, you're going to be on midnights. And I said, is that the bad news? Because I don't, I don't mind midnights at all. He goes, yeah. I said, well, what's the good news? He said, well, it's a state visit. So Obama's going and it's, you know, they're going to, we go to Buckingham Palace. 
And after the event, they are staying in Buckingham overnight. And that's the midnight shift you're going to do. And while that sounded real, I was like, oh, that sounds pretty cool. I didn't get too excited even at the time. And again, it's not a, I'm too cool for school thing. It's a, I've been on the job long enough to know, okay, look, I'm going to go into, you know, into the, past the gates at Buckingham. I'm going to get ushered into a side room. They're going to say, stay here. If we need you during the night, we call you. They're checking a box that I'm there and that's it, right? That, that, that's the reality. No, that's not what happened at all. Um, I met our site advance, Mark, and Mark met me at 6 p.m., got me inside the gates, got me my credential, and uh, brought me to the, one of the command posts that I figured I'd be in. And he showed me, he said, look, uh, since Obama's here, here's a Secret Service command post. Here's the local command post, local being the British command post. Um, just hang out here. I got to go do the event. It's just starting. I said, well, I, you gave me my credential. How about I come help you out? And he's like, yeah, actually, that, that sounds good. Come on. So we went upstairs. And here, everyone dressed to the nines, anyone you could think of, celebrity, former prime minister, every former prime minister walking by. It was just a who's who walking by. This is pretty neat. I like this. Mark went to do his thing. He's like, I'll be right back for you. He came back and he's like, okay, I'm done. Let me show you where secretary's room is in case you have to react during the night. Okay. So we go, shows me the room. And um, as you know, you do things... You don't do anything you shouldn't do, but you take advantage of certain situations when you can. I was like, dude, this is a great room. Take a picture of me. He's like, yeah, no problem. So he took a picture of me uh, in the secretary's room, the window, and you can see the Queen Victoria statue behind me. So you know I'm in the palace. I was like, okay, that'll be my one. Hey, I was here. So as we were looking around, doing the hard room and where we're going to be, where we evac, hold here, blah, blah, blah. I noticed there's a desk and on the desk there's stationery and it says Buckingham Palace. So I tore a piece of the paper off and put it in my pocket. I wrote my mom a note that night while I was on midnights and she has it framed in her house to this day, which is pretty cool. Um, fast forward, go back to the command post. And uh, now I start my midnight shift. Now everything's winding down. It's probably after midnight. And uh, I ended up, I started in the Secret Service command post. And it was not a lot of activity. Uh, there were a lot of quiet people. Not really what I needed to stay awake. So I went over to the local command post. And the Brits were amazing. Lively, fun, storytelling. So I sat in there with them. And uh, while we're sitting there, I don't know, hour or two go by. and. Uh, one of the Secret Service guys comes over and he's like, hey, I have to go to the bathroom. So the, one of the supervisors says, hey, Nigel, take him to the bathroom. I didn't think anything of it. He went to the bathroom. A little while later, I was like, hey, I got to go to the restroom now too. He goes, go ahead. I said, well, doesn't Nigel need to take me? He goes, no, look at your, uh, look at your badge. They gave Secret Service escort required badges. And they gave us unescorted access. 
because of how good of a job Mark did on the side advance. They, they loved him. Um, and they, they rewarded us for it. So I was like, wow, okay, great. He goes, hold on a second, come here. Pulls me over to the desk, pulls out a schematic of Buckingham, laminated, color-coded. And as you can tell yourself, not, a, not giving any state secrets away, but if you look at a satellite image of Buckingham, it's a big rectangle. And he, he had it all color-coded. And he said, you see this? And he points to a, a red area. I said, yeah. He goes, that's the queen's wing. You can't go there. I said, all right. He said, you see the rest of it? Yeah. He goes, we'll see you later. I walked around that place like it was my own personal museum that night. Um, I, I struck up conversations with some of the guards in the hallway. Nicest 80-year-old guys that have been there forever telling me about the art on the wall that was as big as the wall of my house. And um, he's like, yeah, these are uninsured. I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, first of all, you're in the most secure building in the country. I said, no, that makes sense. He says, number two, we don't know what they're worth, so we can't insure them. They're, they're priceless pieces of art. I was just dumbfounded. Um, same guy took me into the ante room that, like, let's say when Will and Kate got married and they had their first kiss on the balcony. The room right before they went out on the balcony is called the gold room, and it is absolutely, like, gaudy gold and red and blue, but in such a royal, cool way. Um, it, it was, it was mind blowing. So got to just see things that you never, ever would be able to see whether you signed up for a tour at Buckingham or whatever the case would be. And my point is just 48 hours or so prior, I had no idea I was going to be doing that. So this job, really gives you uh, some experiences that your buddies from whether it's high school, college, uh, or even colleagues on the job now, they haven't done that. Uh, but everyone has their own unique stories. And that's probably my best one. I gotta say, that's gotta be your top one. That's, that's one I haven't heard uh, from anyone because you're one of the only people that have done it. That's yeah. Pretty, pretty amazing. Well, good stuff, my friend. Yeah, buddy. Um, so what is, uh, if you have, so aspiring agents listen to this, we got a few of them. We got some active agents, veteran agents, retired sure. as well. Any advice for uh, those that uh, are interested in becoming a DS agent, whether it's advice for backs or advice for on the job, how to, how to, you know, do well at the job. Um, I always try to, I, I tell a lot of our, I'll start with the, our agent part. There are a lot of new guys that I like to mentor. Um, I'm not a supervisor, but I do take a lot of new guys under my wing to teach them. And I love teaching. Um, and I think they feel more comfortable, not me not being a boss, unless, you know, talking to AIC at Unga. But even then, it's like a learning experience. I always say, look, I'm not a big advice guy. But the only one I do give them is, in my opinion, don't work this job for promotion. Work the job for what you want to do. Do it well, and the promotions will come. So I'll give you, for instance, if you, like I said, I liked all things domestic. I like the investigations. I like the protection. If you're a protection guy and you want to travel and you want to make a lot of money and you want to be with the secretary, try to get on the secretary's detail as much as you can. Um, you hate protection. You want to really focus on investigations. Try to become an 1811. Um, or you don't have to do that. You can stay as a 2501 and you can be in our criminal investigative liaison office. You can be in our visa fraud office, which I don't know if they still have a visa fraud office, but there, there are other opportunities that you can seek 
that don't necessarily fit the traditional quote unquote DS career path. Um, a lot of people will tell you, you have to do X, Y, Z if you want to get promoted. That may be true, but I, again, my advice would be don't focus on the promotion. If you're a high speed guy and you want to be on our MSD team, which is our, as you know, our, our kind of worldwide SWAT equivalent, um, so to speak, mobile security deployments, go for it. Be a high-speed guy. Do it the best you can. You don't want to be a high-speed guy. You'd rather, um, you know, what we, you were talking about PII before, some protective investigations and intelligence. Do that. Whatever you do, do it the best you can. Be supportive of your other agents. Um, look out for each other is number one, I think. Um, and when you do that, you really can't go wrong. As far as people who are looking to get the job, make sure you know what you're getting into because it can be as, as rewarding and great stories that you and I have been talking about. Um, it can be hard on your family life and it can be, um, you know, if you don't know that you're going to have to do, let's say, I don't know if the number is accurate, but 50% travel, even in a domestic office, you have to go on a crimp trip. You have to go on a protection trip. If you're not aware of that, then you're not going to be happy and you're going to either end up leaving or you're going to do the job with an attitude. And we don't want that at all. Um, no, no sour apples, no well poisoners that, that, that brings everybody down. So a know what you're getting into and B just do it well and everything else will follow. Um, I'm lucky. My kids have been, uh, I got my daughter sitting right over here. She popped in while we were talking. Um, and while she, uh, you know, she's 16 almost, and I've been doing this as long as she's been around. She was born overseas. So I'm lucky that they understand what the job entails. And my number one rule is I may go away, but I'm always coming home. So as long as you have that support and the understanding, go for it. Um, but at the same time, if it's not, you, you learn all the details and you know what it entails and it doesn't sound great, and don't waste your time. Don't waste our time. You know, we want team players who are, are going to be able to step in and say, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. That sounds good. Great tips, my friend, for both uh, young, new, active agents and, and uh, those aspiring agents. So, all right, buddy. This was awesome. Absolutely. Yeah, man. I appreciate I've enjoyed it. it. Yeah. That, thank you uh, for coming on. You think you did an awesome job. And uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to hang up here in a little bit, but hang tight and uh, we'll talk a little more. Sure. Right, thanks, buddy. All right. How about that story of Buckingham Palace? Once in a lifetime opportunities this job creates, that is uh well, that's good stuff. And how about the blues music? Figured I'd change it up since Chris is out of St. Louis. You know, they are known for their blues. I happen to be a blues fan, being from Louisiana and near the New Orleans area. So there you go. All right, other items. Those of you interested in becoming a DSS agent, I have developed a number of resources over the past couple of years uh, to help support you in your research, maybe your decision to pursue this career or not. Remember, I don't work for DS anymore. I did a decade with DS. I am not a representative of DS, although I am a 
uh, a fan of the organization. I have met some really great people there, and it set me on the career path that I am now. So if you're interested, check out this information. Number one, YouTube. I put out about 20-plus videos discussing life as a DSS agent. Living overseas, uh, family concerns, so on and so forth. I, I basically answer questions. People submit questions through a number of mediums. And I go out and I answer those questions uh, on a YouTube channel. So a lot of it's just me talking and talking and talking. But I heard that there's uh, some good information on it. So go check it out. Next, Facebook. joining uh, um, Join the Becoming a DSS Agent Facebook group if you're interested in becoming a DSS agent. Or at least learning more about the career path. Um, it, it's a, it's a, a unique group where retired, former, current DS special agents of all levels interact. They ask and answer questions. I have designated group experts that can chime in and they have been really, really helpful. I think this is a very, very good group for you if you are interested in pursuing that career. If you're just there to listen in, I probably won't approve you, but if you want to be a part of this group, to contribute or to gain value from it. I think it, it it does give a lot of value, offer a lot of value. So check it out. Remember, fill out the questions so I can know who you are. Of course, I have an Instagram page. Many of you found me on that. It's off the X underscore Inc. I-N-C. I post about DSS, global security, personal safety, just about anything security and safety related. Uh, and again, that's at off the X underscore Inc. I don't think, I don't overthink it. I just kind of go with it. Um, but you know, I'm trying to add value wherever I can, whether it's, uh, to your personal safety, to your family's personal safety, you get a lot of shares on some of those or, uh, you know, to contribute to, again, the research and knowledge of diplomatic security. Also something new for those of you wanting a bit more, I now have a Patreon membership account. Those, uh, there you can get a bonus material, including early release uh, of the podcast, uh, discounts on apparel, uh, at additional short stories about DS uh, thought-provoking articles, a chance to be a part of virtual happy hours with some guest speakers, run through some scenario-based training should you be interested in learning more about how one would respond to scenarios. And that's not just as a DS special agent, but as a security professional in general or a federal law enforcement uh, professional in general, um, you know, you can get that uh, get that there. So check it out. First time I've done this, folks have asked for more uh, and uh, have... Uh, you know, wanted to contribute more in different ways. You've bought sticker patches, you've bought hats, you've bought shirts, some you probably didn't need. Uh, well, now there's an option to go here and get a little bit more and support the cause. So patreon.com slash off the X underscore Inc. All of this started with a book that I wrote called Agents Unknown, True Stories of Life as a Special Agent in the Diplomatic Security Service. It's available in paperback on Amazon, Barnes & Noble Online, digital format, iBooks, Kindle, audio format on Audible, Apple Books. Um, you can find the links to all of those or to most of those and buy directly from me where I am happy to sign my name and lessen its value by doing so or uh, throw in a couple extra items for you uh, if you want to get it at CodyParon.com. So go ahead and check it out there. Finally, again, website's CodyParon.com. As I said, I have some hats, I have some t-shirts, I have patches. My hoodies are back. The high threat protection, getting you off the X hoodies are very popular. Uh, they've sold out twice so far, and so they're going pretty fast. So check them out. And as I said, you can also uh, buy the book on the site where I will usually throw in a little something extra. So uh, thanks very much. Thanks all for the support. Let me know how I can support you. Info at CodyPeron.com or find me in all of these different mediums that I told you about. Thanks, y'all. 
appreciate it. Out.